Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. I'm Cardiff Garcia. On the show today, my chat with economist Anne Case. If you follow economics, you probably know Dr. Case from her trilogy of papers on mortality and morbidity in the 21st century. The first paper in this series was published in the summer of 2015, the second paper a few months after that, and the third paper just last month. Each paper was co-authored by Angus Deaton, who you might remember from an earlier episode of Alpha Chat. And this research is maybe best known for the startling finding that middle-aged mortality for American non-Hispanic whites had started climbing after decades of progress, after decades of falling. But the work goes much deeper than that. It explores the relationship between measures of well-being and pain. It looks at how trends are being driven by deaths of despair. So that would be deaths by suicides, drug overdoses, and alcohol-related diseases. And it also investigates why these trends are affecting America, but not European countries with similar socioeconomic characteristics. And finally, the work did lead to a few methodological disputes with other researchers, some of these disputes more substantive than others, which weren't, uh, and also questions about how to frame the conclusions about differing trends for white and black Americans. I'll disclose now that having looked at these disputes before the interview, I do think that the findings by Case and Deaton hold up, and that this is just monumentally important work. But the arguments still yielded some great insights, so I'm really glad that Case and Deaton did engage with their online interlocutors. This interview runs a bit long, but producer Amy Keaton and I thought that the length was justified given the significance of the work we discuss. And we also talked about Dr. Case's background and her early papers on South Africa, childhood health, and the reason that height is such a useful and really interesting variable. But we plan to release that other part of the interview about Dr. Case's background as a short bonus episode within the next couple of weeks. So without further delay, here's my chat with Anne Case. And Case, thanks for being on the show. My pleasure. Good to be here. Great. All right. Uh, here's what I thought we'd do, right? Um, this is the roadmap I have planned out for us and for our listeners. We're going to go through the big recent paper that's generated all the attention, right, and that you've been talking about. But we're also going to go through the two prior papers that that third paper is a part of. In other words, in 2017, you published this paper, right, just a few weeks ago called Mortality and Morbidity in the 21st Century. What our listeners may not be aware of is that actually the first paper in this series was called Suicide, Age, and Well-Being, an Empirical Investigation, published in the middle of 2015. And I note that the little bit at the end, an empirical investigation is sort of doing uh, a little bit of double meaning work because it is also an investigation into the empirics of how this kind of economics is done, right? So let's start by talking about that. This paper looks at first whether or not there's a relationship between suicide rates and self-reported well-being. And then it looks at whether or not either of those two is a useful indicator of overall societal well-being. 
That's right. We um, started because we were looking for a benchmark for self-reported well-being. That if you ask people on a scale from zero to 10, how would you say your life is going at present? Um, Most Americans would give themselves about a seven. But we wondered if we're going to start to incorporate people's sense of well-being into public policy, we wanted to know, does this actually pick up something meaningful? And we thought that if suicide might give us um, way out in the tail a measure of just how unhappy people could become. And so we wondered, is it the case that in those parts of the country, say county by county, people report themselves having poor well-being, are those the parts of the country where people are killing themselves? Because we thought that might be sort of the ultimate um, sign of not being well. And to just to answer that question first, the answer was no, actually. It turned out that there was no correlation between places where people said their lives were going poorly and areas where people were killing themselves. But along the way, what we found was, which we weren't anticipating, although the CDC was writing data briefs on this, was that suicide rates were going up in the states. And then when we wondered, well, relative to what? What is mortality doing overall? And that's when we realized that mortality rates for white non-Hispanics in the U.S. had started to rise and that no one had actually written about that. So that that was kind of the impetus for the the next set of papers that we worked on. We were very surprised when we saw that the mortality rates among whites are rising, and we really couldn't believe that it wasn't already in the literature. So we took that work on the road, and we showed it to people at various medical schools. We talked to demographers that we knew around the country, And it did turn out that it had happened under the radar. So the first paper, which was the suicide and well-being paper, then kind of gave way quite organically to work on what the heck is going on here? Why are whites dying in middle age? To be more specific, the paper that followed the suicide paper looked at uh, mortality rates for white non-Hispanics in the U.S., we focused on an age group of 45 to 54 because we, we thought we should be precise but not look like we were cherry-picking by taking an even smaller group than that. And uh, we started to peel the onion to try to find out what was going on. That's interesting that actually it was in the process of conducting this more specific paper that ended up catalyzing the research that you did uh, in your later papers. But I want to stay on this paper for a bit, sure. if you don't mind. Um, you mentioned that uh, you couldn't find the relationship between suicides and self-reported well-being geographically. But actually, uh, you also found that that relationship didn't hold in other dimensions. I'm going to give you a couple of examples here. Uh, one was that suicide rates continue rising with age for men, whereas their self-reported well-being follows a U-shaped curve where they're happier when they're young, it dips in middle age, and then they get happy again when they're older. So there's no relationship there. Uh, Life evaluation is the same throughout the week, but actually suicides tend to be bunched up on Mondays. Uh, And there were other dimensions. I thought it was just very clever the way you guys looked at these patterns because you had all this data and then essentially eliminated the possibility of that relationship or the likelihood, I should say. 
Yeah, I should say that one of the things that we thought was interesting was what you just mentioned, which is actually called a circa septian rhythm, which is what happens over the days of the week. When economists tend to look at suicide, they like to think, well, could it possibly be rational that I've looked forward and I've made a decision that um, my life actually isn't worth living? And so that when I look at the sort of present discounted value of all my future happiness or well-being, it's just not worth me staying alive for. But if that were true, if, if people were making such a calculation, it's really hard to believe that people would end up bunching up on Mondays. So the lowest day of the week for suicides would be Friday and the highest would be Monday, whereas self-evaluation of how life is going is flat over all those days of the week. So, well, we know for sure that suicide is not well understood. And we think that the idea that people are making complicated calculation is probably not going to be dispositive in their decision to pull out a gun. You also frame this paper in a wider philosophical context, the beginning, mm. where you write that economists are always struggling with the idea that these self-reported measures may or may not match observable reality. And you would think that life satisfaction, as you report it yourself, would be connected to suicides. Mm-hmm. This seems like another example where a relationship that seems commonsensical turns out uh, just not to be true in real life. I don't really have a good explanation for why they're not better related, it's 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 a white phenomenon. It's a male phenomenon. There's a suicide belt that runs right up the spine of the Rocky Mountains. So from New Mexico, Arizona, all the way up through Montana. Those are also the places where people report themselves being happiest. So it's it's really far from clear how you take those two pieces, that this is a place where people are killing themselves. And if you think about white men, and historically it's always been white men, whether it's been a period when white men were, you know, top of the heap, or whether it's a period when white men may feel under threat, it's white men who are killing themselves, even though they have on average more income, on average more education, on average a lot of dimensions that we can uh, quantify would seem to have more material goods And yet that's the group that is, by a long chalk, more likely to actually kill themselves. You mentioned something a second ago that reminded me also that you uh, and your co-author, Angus Deaton, strike a note of humility throughout these papers. And in this paper, what you write is that a lot of this data just isn't very well understood yet, right? In other words, it, it is surprising, at least to somebody coming into this work who isn't familiar with it, that self-reported life satisfaction and suicide rates don't necessarily correlate to overall measures of societal well-being. Did that surprise you when you came to the end of this paper? It did, and it pushed us to actually look to see whether or not we could find any markers we have that correlate with suicide. And the one marker that we could find is that in those places where people report more pain, those were places where people were more likely to kill themselves. 
So we did find a, a, a strong correlation between suicide and something that we know from our friends in psychology and from psychiatrists we know is a real risk factor for suicide, which is pain. So if we understood we thought pain better, we could probably understand suicide better. It's also the case that um, people, when they think Rocky Mountain states, they immediately think, well, that's where their people have access to guns. And that indeed is true, but we don't think that it's the access to guns in particular, because within the Rocky Mountain states, county by county, to the best we can measure this, it's not the places where guns are most prevalent that the suicide rates are higher. So it's a complicated story. We know that social isolation is a risk factor for suicide, and it's also the case when you're out there in the wide open range that you may be more isolated than you anticipated being. So social isolation and pain both being uh, risk factors, and indeed we do see correlations there, but not to the kind of quantifiable economic characteristics that we thought we'd find. Yeah, it, it's also just interesting to me that a self-reported measure of pain was strongly correlated with suicide mm. rates, but that suicide rates were not strongly correlated to a self-reported measure of overall life evaluation. Yeah, you would think that those three things might go together, mm-hmm. right? And the thing about self-reported pain, like self-reported uh, life evaluation, is you're the only person who can report it, right? And pain isn't something that we can actually put somebody up on a examining table and say, yes, indeed, this person is feeling pain. pain. Yeah. Right. So that also makes it difficult. There is some pushback from some economists because it is self-reported, both these measures, which I think also brings us back to why one might want to look at self-reported life evaluation to see whether or not it correlates with things we think we know how to measure. Right. Now, if it only picked up things we knew how to measure it wouldn't be all that useful because we're measuring those things anyway. But if it doesn't correlate with anything we think is useful, then it raises some questions. Right. It's also the case if people become accustomed, this would be a Martia Sen's point, if someone becomes accustomed to various degradations, to living a really difficult life, and they adapt and they say that their life is going well because they've adapted to the insults that they face day in and day out. Is it really clear that we want to use life evaluation if it's the case that a person is starving to death or watching their children die or doesn't have a warm place to get in out of the cold? It's not clear that we would want to use that measure for public policy mm-hmm. anyway if it's if it's the case that people adapt to their circumstances to that extent. Yeah. Here's one final question about this paper, and it'll serve as a kind of jumping off point to the paper you published a few months after that. You write in the paper that it's possible that the dip in life evaluation is a recent phenomena and, quote, that it is indeed linked to the rise in suicide in middle age with both driven by increasing physical and mental distress in middle age, unquote. That seems to be the kind of impetus for the next body of work. Yes, absolutely. When we were finishing up that paper, but we're already hard at work at trying to figure out why are people in middle age dying in larger numbers, 
we started with knowing we had suicide on the go because that was a place where rates were increasing. But going to the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, which has a, a website you can actually query and look at causes of death, we thought maybe it's heart disease, maybe it's cancer, maybe it's diabetes with the obesity rates rising as they are. And the answer kept coming back, no, actually those rates are falling. No, those rates are falling. What was rising? Well, external causes. Okay, well, what are external causes? Well, it wasn't traffic accidents and it wasn't homicide. It was... Um, largely suicides and something called poisonings, right? So what are poisonings, we thought? Is that like drinking Drano when you thought it was milk or something? But no, that's the bin into which the CDC puts drug overdose. So then we thought, oh my gosh, drug overdose and suicide. And that led us to think another possible cause of death that that might be related would be from alcohol-related diseases. And indeed, what we found was alcoholic liver disease and cirrhosis rates were rising as well. So those three causes went up quite rapidly. And as we thought about them, we thought they were all ways in which people kill themselves, either quickly with a gun or slowly with drugs or alcohol. And that sort of led us into an entire new line of work, which is trying to figure out what the heck is going on here? Why is this happening? The CDC had been reporting all of those things, but in different places. So if you go back to CDC reports, there is a report that says alcoholic liver disease and cirrhosis is on the rise among whites. Different reports, suicide is on the rise. Different report, opioid epidemic is really taking hold, especially among whites. So the information was there. It was just not being put together in the way that we thought seemed most natural to put it together. Right. should note for our listeners, by the way, CDC, Center for Disease Control here in the United States. Okay, then let's talk about the paper you published uh, a few months later, um, which was the result of these trends that you were Mm -hmm. studying that you just mentioned. This one was called Rising Morbidity and Mortality in Midlife Among White Non-Hispanic Americans in the 21st Century, and it was published in the PNAS, that's the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences Journal. And I thought we'd start just by going through what it found, because this paper was one where essentially you just presented the facts. You didn't get into the detail that you would get into in the paper that you published this year. So why don't we just go uh, through each of those? Uh, Here's the first quote that I pulled from it. Quote, this paper documents a market increase in the all-cause mortality of middle-aged white non-Hispanic men and women in the United States between 1999 and 2013. And the proxy for middle age that you use is ages 45 to 54. This was a reversal after decades of progress for this category. That's right. It was more than just decades. Actually, if you go back to the 20th century, for whites in America aged 45 to 54, the mortality rate fell from 1,400 
per 100,000 people in, say, 1900, down to 400. So a drop of 1,000 per 100,000. And just sort of like a steady decline. There was, um, you know, a little blips like the 1918 flu epidemic, and there's a little plateau around 1960 where people in middle age who had smoked like chimneys in their 20s and 30s were dying of cancer and uh, heart disease. But aside from those two little blips, uh, we had come to expect progress and that progress would continue. And when you look um, at countries that we might think of as being comparison countries, other English-speaking countries, Canada, Australia, the UK, other rich countries in Europe, Mortality rates after the turn of the century, 21st century, continued to fall in middle age. But the U.S. whites decided to leave the herd. So like these other countries, we had been enjoying a 2% per year decline in mortality rates. And name me your favorite European country, that is what characterizes people in middle age now. But among whites in the U.S., first progress slowed, and then it started to go the wrong way. So this yawning gap opened up between the U.S. whites and European countries. And I should say that Hispanic mortality continues to fall like the European countries fall. One thing that some reporters tend to misreport is that Hispanics in the U.S. actually have lower mortality rate than whites. This is even though they're on average poorer, on average have less education, but they have always had rates that looked a lot more like European countries. Sorry, when you say that uh, reporters misreport it, you mean that it is the case that Hispanics have lower mortality rates than whites, but reporters sometimes say that Hispanics have a higher mortality yes, rate some, incorrectly, right? Incorrectly. It's called like the Hispanic uh, paradox. paradox I think. That's exactly right. And it's not, it's not well understood because people tend to think these good things go together, income, education, and health. African-Americans have always had higher mortality rate than whites, but those mortality rates have been falling at an even faster clip than what we see for the European countries. So they made real progress. Hispanics continue to make progress, but for white non-Hispanics, things started to turn around. Can I, can I put some quick numbers on sure. the mortality rates for uh, white Americans versus African Americans? Normally, it's not a good idea to use numbers in a podcast because everybody goes to sleep, but just because I, I think these are important, important numbers. So as you just said, black mortality rates are still much higher as of 2013. But it's also the case that black mortality rates through 2013, according to this paper, had been falling. So here are the numbers. As of 2013, uh, there were 582 deaths per 100,000 for black Americans versus 415 deaths for white Americans. But in that same amount of time between 1998 and 2013, Black mortality rates had fallen by 27%, whereas white mortality rates had climbed by about 8%. That sounds right. Not to jump ahead to the most recent paper, but what we find is that among blacks and whites with a high school degree or less, which is about 40% of the population in uh, middle age from the period from, say, 1998 to 2015, Black mortality rates fell enormously, whereas white mortality rates rose. So there's been an almost complete convergence between 
black and white mortality for people with a high school degree or less. Now, to the extent that that's happening because black mortality rate is falling, that's fabulous. But to the extent that some people are celebrating equity, which is an equalization of these rates, celebrating it because white mortality is rising, that strikes me as being really off the mark. Right. Like It seems strange that you want uh, equality for its own sake when equality means that one of those groups is dying at a faster clip. Yes. And then if the Centers for Disease Control, which every year in their big publication called Health United States, they will tell you how much progress we've made toward equalizing life expectancy between blacks and whites. And I think that if anything, I think that that is really a disservice to measurement of black progress. If you want to measure the, the progress we're making on Africa, African-American mortality, benchmark it to the Europeans. Don't benchmark it to the U.S. whites whose mortality is moving in the wrong direction. Right, right. That's an interesting point. And the framing issues on this are fascinating, but we're going to talk about those in, the, ne- in the next paper. Yes. Let's stay with, 23- okay, let's say, let's stay with okay. 2015 for a second. All let's keep cause, going through. All-cause yep. mortality being... At all caught and literally as it suggests that's dying from everything but the the three causes of mortality that were rising most rapidly for people whites and middle age were suicide drug overdose and alcohol related liver deaths however um, none of that would have come to light if we had continued to make uh, the kind of progress we used to make on heart disease so it it was the case that the progress on heart disease we were making was masking the fact that these causes of death were rising and rising in their rates. But when our progress on heart disease first slowed and then flatlined, then suddenly there's an opening for these causes of death to raise their heads. And that's really what we saw happening yeah. in the U.S., I want to also emphasize that when you compare what's happening in the U.S. to what's Mm. happening in European countries, that's not like some frivolous exercise of comparing us versus them. It's also because it gives us some insight into which causes can be ruled out. Mm. And you mentioned in that paper that European countries have been suffering from the same, for instance, productivity stagnation that the United States has been suffering from. And certainly in the aftermath of the financial crisis, at least, the overall economic stagnation has been worse in many parts of Europe than it has been in the U.S. And yet, in Europe, those mortality rates continue to fall. Not so in the United States. Absolutely. Uh, I think the comparisons are interesting, both because of the fact that these are all wealthy countries, and because they also went through the financial crisis, and because they lost jobs to the Far East the way the U.S. did in terms of manufacturing, and yet people there are not killing themselves slowly or quickly. So the next tranche of work will be to see to what extent can some of that be pinned on to universal health care, which is available in Europe, to what part of that is the, the fact that their safety nets are much stronger you than the U.S. You mentioned the pension systems over there are a little bit different as well. Defined benefit, benefit pensions are more common there than mm-hmm. they are here in the U.S. And the divine uh, benefits pensions, which used to be the way the U.S. had a pension system, meant that as you approached retirement, you had a very strong sense of how much you would have every year to live on. Whereas with a defined contribution system, you bear the risk when you retire. 
And that's a huge difference. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about morbidity. Morbidity, sure. Yeah, of course. So morbidity is sort of a catch-all for any markers of health that we think have an impact on a person's well-being or that may predict death later. And for the body count that we get out of mortality, those are hard numbers, right? Those are, we know how many people died. With a lot less precision, we know what they died of, but that's, again, with a lot less precision. But underneath that body count, there has been in the U.S. a real surge in pain. So people... Year on year in the National Health Interview Survey, which is a large nationally representative survey, year on year people are reporting more sciatic pain, which is lower back pain that shoots down your legs, chronic pain, chronic joint pain. And in a list of activities of daily living, people are year on year reporting more difficulty doing such things as socializing with their friends, which we know is a risk factor for suicide relaxing at home. They report more heavy drinking. Oh, also mental health. The National Health Interview Survey asks a battery of questions. And when you put the answers together, it gives you a marker for whether someone is at risk for serious mental illness or serious mental distress. Those numbers have been getting worse. So what we see is underneath the increase in mortality rates is what we see this sort of sea of pain and mental distress. When you put those together with the mortality numbers, the story looks pretty bleak. Yeah. I had another question about the trends you just mentioned, and in particular, putting together the mortality and the morbidity trends. In that paper, which was actually pretty short, I mean, people can read it, it's just a few pages long. Uh, You were, I think, more concerned with the presentation of the facts. I'm wondering if by the end of it, you realized that it would be a good idea to start coming up with a theory that may not be easy to prove, but would at least be consistent with these really astonishing trends that you were seeing. And if that was sort of why you went into so much more detail in the subsequent paper. We were just so taken with the fact that all of this was happening and seemed to have been taking place under the radar that there was no question that we, but that we would follow it up. As you can imagine, once that paper was published, a lot of people asked us to come and talk about it. And everywhere we went to talk about it, people knew what the answer was, but everybody's answer was different. So we knew that it was something that was causing people to have a very strong reaction, but it was kind of like a Rorschach test because people tended to bring to it what what was on their minds. That's interesting. It was like you got a tour of everybody's confirmation biases. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and we made lists. We made lists of things that we had ourselves been thinking about, but we also made lists of things that weren't on our radar and thank goodness are now really fully on our radar that we think are important to follow up. It certainly was the case that uh, we got a lot of opinions on it. What's an example of something that before, uh, when you were just trying to get the facts across, Mm. was not yet on your radar as you describe it, uh, but that later was very much. Uh, was the op- opioid crisis uh, one of those, or were you already looking at that, that pretty was, carefully? That was already on our radar. I mean, that was also something that 
of all of these things, that was something that was raising its head above the surface. The Centers for Disease Control had put out these stunning numbers on the fact that in 2010, enough prescriptions were written for painkillers to medicate every American adult around the clock for a month. And as I read more, I realized that when people started talking about prescription painkillers, they were being divided into categories as less strong than morphine or stronger than morphine, which which seemed very strong to me, and that the balance between those two things had shifted in the 21st century toward the stronger than morphine variety. The introduction of OxyContin in the late 1990s and the workforce that was put out around the country to try to market this new wonder drug, no one should be in pain. We have a war on pain. And that war on pain, unfortunately, became a different kind of a war. It became a war against the kinds of drugs that are causing addiction. We know for sure that part of the increase in drug overdoses was caused by the fact that people are prescribed very strong painkillers for chronic pain, which they may or may not ever should have been prescribed. They become addicted. The painkillers are very expensive. Maybe they get cut off, and then they turn to a drug that's now readily available and very cheap and very pure, which is a heroin coming in from Mexico, and in the most recent wave of that, fentanyl. So we think that turning off the taps, prescription pain tap, it's not the answer, we don't think. We think it was an accelerant to what happened. But it certainly is something that we know that we can do and probably should do. I mean, OxyContin is heroin in a pill. It's actually apparently even a little better than heroin in a pill because it it latches onto the receptors in your brain better than heroin do. So heroin is kind of like a good but not a perfect substitute Mm -hmm. for these opioids. So the opioids, uh, it does sound like it was very much on your radar screen at the time. Uh, That was, was... but what was not, for example, was uh, what our friends in sociology have been talking to us about for a decade, which is the fact that people who don't have a good job find that they're not very marriageable. And so marriage rates were, were breaking down in the U.S. among whites, we think that if if people need stability in their lives, one of the pillars for stability is being married. And the marriage rates, if you look birth cohort by birth cohort, for people with less than a college degree, marriage rates have been going down and then down and then down some more. For example, Andrew Cherlin writes about white women with a high school degree or less it's unusual for them not to have a child out of wedlock now. Mores changed, people move in together, but those cohabitations in the U.S. are a lot less stable than they are, say, in Europe, where cohabitation is quite quite the norm. But if it's an if it's fragile, because she may throw you out, or you decide to leave because you both are looking for better economic prospects, and that happens repeatedly that leaves you with much less of a of a safe haven when the labor market is pummeling you at the same time. 
So marriage is definitely something that's on our radar now and might not have been had we not uh, taken this a step farther. Maybe also not if, if you hadn't also been in touch with uh, sociologists about yeah. this. Our friends Sarah McClanahan and Irv Garfinkel, who run something that's known as the Fragile Families Survey, have been following young couples, mostly young couples who are not married, and the children of those young couples have, are now about to turn 14, and they've been following the relationships of these men and women from the time she gave birth in the hospital up until the, the kids are 14, and they're watching the uncoupling and recoupling and the negotiation and how people try to manage their lives. Mm-hmm. And um, we realize that's a really important part of our story as well. Yeah. I'm going to cite one more point from the paper, and then we're going to talk about the uh, methodological back and forth you had with some people, because this is a really just a shocking uh, number. You write that if the previous trends of declining mortality had continued in the Mm -hmm. time when they ended up reversing, that the U.S. would have avoided almost another half a million deaths. And then you compare that to the AIDS epidemic, which I think the latest number is that it had about 650,000 deaths. That's but right. it, it at the time got a lot of attention. There was a lot of sort of flocking to try to, to try to treat it properly, whereas this kind of ended up going under the radar a little bit. That's right. And it, the numbers that you just gave out are our best estimates of what mm-hmm. did happen. All of those deaths, those half million deaths, those people who got to age 45 but never saw their 55th birthday, A lot of those are from what we call deaths of despair, suicide, drug overdose, alcohol. But part of that is also the fact that heart disease mortality flatlined. So part of this is due to something that we certainly don't understand, which is why, unlike European countries where heart disease progress continues, why in the U.S. heart disease progress flatlined. So you put those together and you get a something that is large enough that it should be getting people's attention. Yeah. I think partly it's the stigma. People don't want to tell you about losing a brother or a mother or a sister. To a death of despair. You mean. To a death of despair. We get a lot of emails from people who will say, thank you very much, you told my story, or I thought I was alone, or... And you realize that the stigma is still alive and well in America in talking about these things. Probably also similarly with those mental distress uh, trends that you mentioned as well, something that people don't like to talk about, psychological problems. People don't like, exactly. And also if if they're not in a stable relationship where they've got another person who they know is you know, in, you know, in for the long haul, you don't have someone to talk about it at home with either, which can be, I think, really devastating, put someone at really high risk for suicide. On the heart disease, I just want to back up one second, if that's possible. When the numbers came out that show that heart disease has flatlined in the U.S., there were reports, recent reports now, that, well, this is finally the obesity crisis coming home to roost, that we've been telling you for 20 years that you were going to pay for the fact that you were all getting obese, and now this has come, and that's the underlying cause. Which we think obesity may play a role, but it doesn't match very well in the sense that 
28% of white non-Hispanic adults in America are obese, while 25% of Brits are obese. Yet their heart disease rates continue to fall at a good clip where ours have actually stopped falling and in the last couple of years started rising. So we don't understand why we stop making progress with heart disease. That is a huge issue. That is a huge killer in, in middle age. So without a better understanding of that, we're just in a position to report that if progress had continued on heart disease and if these deaths of despair hadn't started rising so rapidly, it would have saved just between the ages of 45 and 54, half a million deaths. But beyond that, people in early middle age are dying in higher and higher numbers from deaths of despair. So once you add in all of those as well, the number gets to be much, much larger than the half million that we reported in Mm -hmm. the paper being conservative, just looking at that one group. Very sobering stuff. Let's talk about uh, methodology because this was, you had a very fun back and forth with, uh, I think the two most substantive critiques were from Andrew Gelman and from the Urban Institute. I think I'm going to combine their critiques because they're very similar. Mm. Here's what Gelman, a statistician and writer who I like a lot, said in response to the paper. And I should note at the very beginning, he didn't say that this overturns the importance of the paper. He was pretty respectful about it. He said that in that cohort from 45 to 54, over those years from 98 to 2013, that the average age of the people in that cohort would have increased naturally just for demographic trends. In other words, people within that 45 to 54 category. And that because of that, you would have expected relative to the baseline you used higher mortality rates anyways, just because of the increasing average age, right? And so when you adjust for that, uh, he found a couple of things. One was that there was still rising mortality rates for white people, but it happened between 99 and 2005. And then after that, it was flat, which is itself, again, even a flat trend is still an incredible stoppage of the, the progress that we'd had before that, not just decades, but as you mentioned, for centuries. So uh, that was one thing, but that also when you made that adjustment and then you looked at the differing trends between men and women, you would see that in 2005, uh, you had rising mortality rates for both until then, but then afterwards, mortality rates for men would start to decrease, but for women, they would continue increasing, right? So those were, I think, the two main points that they brought up. The Urban Institute had uh, almost the same critique with, I think, slightly different numbers. And then you responded. Uh, Why don't you tell us what your response was? Well, in part, let 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 me do this in two bits. Sure. Okay. So in the new paper, we actually show what a difference age adjustment makes, which is very little. We think that just a kind of mechanical age adjustment in this particular case doesn't make as much sense because it's not as if there's some natural force at work that causes people as they get older to kill themselves or to take drugs until they overdose. So it's not as if there's some kind of force of nature under underneath that and that if you age adjust without adjusting for other things as well, in a sense, you privilege the age adjustment. You're just saying that, like, okay, for some reason, people age 50 are more likely to kill themselves than people age 45. So let's age adjust it and take out that bit, in a sense. We found in the, in, and we try to do this very carefully in the new paper, 
if you age adjust, it's true that it is true that within that band, age 45 to 54, going from 1990 to 2015, people within that band got a half year older on average. Mm -hmm. So you would expect some more deaths. But the age adjustment does tend to, and the age adjustment does tend to flatten out the increase. But for us, and I think you sort of alluded to this, whether or not it actually increases or just flatlines isn't the most important thing. The most important thing to us is the fact that all of these other countries and Hispanics in the U.S. and blacks in the U.S. are continuing to make progress and progress for whites has stopped. That's right. That's probably the most important finding. In and Fairman Gelman uh also said that that, and he said it's still a monumentally important paper uh he just disagreed on this one thing so in the new paper what we do is we i we show some results single year of age by single year of age and we also look at five-year age bands instead of 10-year age bands but as you can imagine once once you're looking at education and race and sex and age and cause of death, you've got a lot of balls in the air. So instead of doing it single year of age by single year of age, we just use five-year bands now, where the age adjustment within the band would make basically no difference at all. But I think the the male-female difference comes from the fact that For both men and women, there have been these marked and really disturbing increases in suicide, drug overdose, alcohol-related deaths. But when you look at all-cause mortality, there's a lot more that goes into that mix, right? Because deaths of despair are becoming an ever-increasingly important part of all-cause mortality, but in middle age, a lot's going to depend on what happens to heart disease, and a lot's going to happen to what happens to cancer. And women started smoking later than men in the U.S., and they stopped smoking later than men in the U.S. So women still have this bulge of smoking-related mortality that they're working through, which is causing their mortality rates to rise, whereas the men's rates from cancer have fallen. So until that works its way through the system, there certainly will be differences in what happens to women's and men's all-cause mortality. And so we try now to make a distinction between what's happening in terms of deaths of despair and what's happening in terms of all-cause. And for capturing those common forces, it still made sense to keep men and women together in your paper, in other words. And and actually, in the new paper, we actually look at by level of education, high school or less, some college, BA or more, and then we look at five-year age groups from 25 to 29-year-olds up into people in their 60s, and what we see is that for both men and women analyzed separately, for those groups without a, a BA, mortality rates have increased between 1998 and 2015. And they look quite similar between men and women. So we think that the commonalities are more important than the differences. The commonalities tend to come from these deaths of despair. And the differences tend to come from behaviors that are moving at different rates for men and women. Yeah, that's interesting. And it makes sense. Uh, I should say one of the reasons I like these backs and forths is that 
I wouldn't have known about the differing effects of smoking habits, right? Mm-hmm. I like knowing that. Yeah. Like that's interesting to me. So I'm I'm glad that you uh that you engaged with the people who were making these critiques at the time because like that I just I find this sort of thing to be helpful. In our new paper, there's a really interesting graph that looks at mortality rates of women in their late 40s from lung cancer, and those rates increased in the 2000s. Mm-hmm. So it's clearly the case that that has to work its way out of the system. Right. Versus men. Versus men, for whom it appears, and I just want to say it appears that the smoking rates and the cancer rates associated with that and the heart disease rates associated with that may have fallen. However, most recently, and this is, again, this is for future work, it's been mentioned to us that whites with less education may have started smoking again in larger numbers. So that's something in the new work that we want to go have a look at because year on year, what gets reported is that smoking rates have been falling. And maybe that's true. Maybe that's true overall. But maybe the people that we're most worried about, the people with less education. So that's that's for the future. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting, though, in other words, because this would be another example of a trend on which societally, overall, measured in the aggregate, it looked like we'd be making progress, but actually there's a subgroup that's not making progress, and it might be enough to affect the data in aggregate as well. Yes, yes. I just on the point about the difference between looking at deaths of despair and looking at all-cause mortality. One one of the places that we like to highlight is the difference between Utah in the U.S. and Nevada. Okay, so they're both in the in the West. They have about the same um, amount of population. They're both big Western states, but Utah two thirds of people who live in Utah are Mormons, so they don't um, drink alcohol, they don't smoke, and they don't drink coffee. Two-thirds of the people who live in Nevada live in the Las Vegas metropolitan statistical area. So we tend to think of that as being the home of happy vice. And indeed, if you look at heart disease mortality rates, they're twice as high in Nevada as they are in Utah for whites in middle age. And all-cause mortality rates are much higher in Utah. But if you look at their deaths of despair... In Utah, the rates of drug overdose and the rates of suicide have skyrocketed. So there's very little daylight between deaths of despair in Nevada and deaths of despair in Utah, which is sort of, uh, to us, a stunning uh, finding. Friends of ours in the Mormon Church have told us that the Mormons are having a very difficult time figuring out how to get their heads and their hands around the opioid crisis there. Let me pause here before we go on to the 2017 paper to ask you how you personally process all this, uh, all the pessimism that's inherent in the conclusions of your paper, because you don't shy away from saying these are not happy conclusions. There's no sort of hopeful out at the end of it. You try to think of things that might help, but none of them are easy. And even if they were implemented right away, uh, you wouldn't see the difference for quite some time. How, how do you as a social scientist process this? Personally, I mean. Personally, it's hard for me when I'm drawing figures and I'm looking at people with less than a, a bachelor's degree, and especially the people I now consider the youngsters, right? The people who were born, say, in 1980. 
and you see their mortality rates from drug overdose and from suicide just going up and up and up. It's it's tough. I it, it actually is very hard. I come from the hard scrabble part of New York State. So I think of this as also being something I watch happen when I go back to my hometown. You have family and friends that are suffering from some of these trends? Um, Not suffering from the trends, uh, suffering from the economic part of it for sure. Not as much the deaths of despair part, but understanding the kind of struggle that takes place in what used to be a thriving um, manufacturing center, uh, original home of IBM, where a lot of the jobs moved out and trying to keep body and soul together gets harder and harder. I feel like I understand part of this from the fact that I've watched upstate New York depopulate and watch the manufacturing jobs disappear. You mentioned earlier in our chat that you sometimes get letters from people saying, uh, mm-hmm. thanks for pointing this out. It helps me to know I'm not alone. What What's the impact of, of getting feedback from, uh, I don't want to say real people, but people who aren't in the economics or social sciences professions? Sometimes people give us really good ideas. I mean, a woman wrote to me and said, I can really relate to your paper. She said, when I was having dinner with my friends, I made a joke that uh, when I retire, I'm going to be a greeter at Walmart because basically I'm going to have to work for the rest of my life. And she said no one laughed because that was their retirement strategy as well, that a lot of people getting toward the second half of middle age don't see how they're going to be able to finance a retirement and are trying to uh, change their focus or change their expectations accordingly. So I would not have thought of it in quite so graphic uh, terms. And so I think it's really helpful for me because then it sends me back to the data and thinking it would be really useful to be able to look at how much people set aside for retirement and to what extent they're at risk. A lot of the people we're talking about probably have set not very much aside. Okay, let's let's talk about the most recent paper. There was a reason that I wanted to talk about the two earlier papers first, which is that you can sort of start to see now how each subsequent paper builds on the findings mm-hmm. of the last. In this paper, you reinforced mm-hmm. the findings from earlier, but then you also provided a lot more detail. Um, and then this paper was published by Brookings, um, and then it was publicly discussed, but it also got a ton of attention. So let's uh, let's go through some of the things first. Uh, that were reinforced from the earlier papers. Um, You looked again at the deaths from despair, the three deaths from despair, suicides, uh, overdoses, and then alcohol-related illnesses, uh, deaths from those illnesses. And then you add in more explicit terms that declining mortality from heart disease has stopped. And when you look at those four causes, 
those largely explain the trend of rising mortality for middle-aged whites. That's right. It's it's it helped us to think about heart disease along with these deaths of despair because it's these two trends that are going in opposite directions. It was the case that heart disease mortality had been declining, deaths of despair had been rising, and what happened was the decline in heart disease flattened out, which allowed then the deaths of despair to cause all mortality to go up. Mm-hmm. But if you want to find one explanation for this U-shape in all-cause mortality in the U.S. among this group, among whites, if it's going to be one cause, that it's going to have to explain both the heart disease on one side and the deaths of despair on, on the other. And so to paraphrase our president, it's complicated. Who knew it was going to be complicated? But it, we think that we need to understand more about both parts of that. But pinning it to one economic change, I think, is more difficult knowing that it's these two long-term trends at work. You, you get into a lot more detail in this paper where you break down uh, mortality rates by gender, mm-hmm. by education, by age. The findings around education seem to be uh, the most dramatic uh, new thing that you discuss in this paper. That grew out of the paper that came out in the PNAS in the sense that when we looked at the numbers of the mortality rate changes for people with a high school degree or less relative to people with a BA, it was right there. It was right there saying the people who are getting hammered here are the people with less education. So we decided that that was where we should look in greater detail. And that indeed turned out to be, I think, a really important way to to slice up the data. We had to be careful because earlier work by other authors looked at people who had less than a high school degree and looked at change in mortality rates for people with less than a high school degree. Well, that group became smaller and smaller and more and more negatively selected over time as the fraction of the American population without a high school degree just plummeted. So we knew we had to look at least at the group with a high school degree or less. And over the period between the mid-1990s and 2015, for people in the original age band, 45 to 54, you could break that into about 40% of people who had a high school degree or less, 30% some college but not a BA, and then 30% with a BA. So those groups weren't changing proportions by more than one or two percentage points, which allowed us to rule out the fact that that group was becoming more and more selected on a negative, in a negative way. And then what we found was that it was the people with a high school degree or less who are a lot more likely to be dying of deaths of despair. And it's hitting everyone, but that group, it just dwarfs what's happening to people with a BA. Sure. I want to stay with this issue of adjusting to make sure that you don't succumb to selection bias, um, because this is, I think, one of your points of disagreement with some other health researchers in particular. I think you cited the work of John Bound uh, in your paper, and you concluded that you were simply your findings were simply more pessimistic than that of his and his colleagues. Specifically, I think the adjustment he makes, and you kind of talked about this just now, but I want to sort of spell this out in layman's terms as well for our listeners. The idea here is that if you're looking at mortality rates for people with no college, right, 
you have to be careful to account for the fact that more people started going to college. So naturally, you would expect that group left behind, so to speak, would be more vulnerable and just because of these selection effects um, would have higher mortality rates. You have to adjust for that. They adjusted for it and they found that uh, I think mortality rates weren't climbing. You adjusted for it and you found something different. What do you think accounts for the discrepancy? Okay, well, we don't actually adjust for it. What we do is we actually say for this group over this period of time, there's no adjustment necessary because the fraction of people in each of these bins isn't changing. So we had to be very careful. A lot of the new paper is based on birth cohort. What happened to the birth cohort of 1945, 1950, 1955, and so on up to 1980. It turns out between the birth cohort of 1945 and 1965, 30% of adults, white adults, got a BA or more. That was flat. Then between 65 and 70, that number went from 30 to 40%, but it's been stubbornly at 40% between the cohort born in 1970 and the latest cohort that we have, which is 1980. I see. That's what you were saying earlier. Yeah. So So what we say is that it's possible that for the movement between 1965 and 1970, part of that might be due to a change in composition. But when you look at the whole range of it from 45, 50, 55, 60, 65, what you see is deterioration, deterioration, deterioration. And that cohort is not being more or less negatively selected through that period. In fact, most of the paper now is looking at people with less than a BA because we find the people with some college are actually having the same kind of social dysfunctions, the same kind of difficulty in the labor market, the same kind of health outcomes as people with just a high school degree. So when we divide the world into people who went to college for four years and people who didn't, we can pretty cleanly say no adjustment is necessary for at least those cohorts born between 45 and 65 and there we see a lot of deterioration there. I also just want to make the point that if you, there's something uh, known as, which you may know, the Will Rogers effect. The Will Rogers effect is that um, if you have two groups, let's just say a, a lower group and an upper group, if some people from the lower group, their way into the upper group, it lowers the average in both groups because the people at the high end of the low group are moving into the upper group where they're now at the low end of the upper group. And so the mean can fall in both places. There are much wittier ways to actually make that point. I think some of them have to do with batting averages and such. But I think we kid that like so-and-so is leaving Princeton and going to University X, right? Thus raising the IQ in both places, right? Yeah. A point made in response to to this critique by a previous guest of this podcast named Noah Smith was that we shouldn't lose the forest for the trees on this one, that you can very easily get rid of selection bias issues just by combining the two groups and you still see the increase. And that's that's the main point of the paper. And in fact, now in the appendix of the new paper, for all the places that we divided the world up between BA and not BA, we show what, what it looks like when you look at the group as a whole. And it's going to look more muted because we think that the people who went to school for four years have different behaviors and different outcomes. So adding them to this group is going to mute the effects. 
but they're still they're still really apparent. Let's go over also again what we were talking about earlier, which is a comparison between white mortality rates and black mortality rates. You get into this a little bit more in this paper, and specifically the second graph in the paper shows that shrinking gap, that shrinking racial gap, and it shows that this is partly the result of black mortality rates coming down, partly the result of white mortality rates going up. Towards the end, though, Mm -hmm. you still see that both of them have started to climb in very recent years. Uh, That's got to be concerning. That is quite concerning. um, After a very long period where black mortality rates were falling, even for people with just a high school degree or less, in 2012, 13, 14, 15, you do begin to see in younger age cohorts a rise in mortality. When When I pull the data and I look at that, it looks like drugs. It looks like the drug epidemic, possibly the one that uh, whites were succumbing to, or possibly a different one, but a new one that's taking its place, possibly fentanyl. It could be a migration of the fentanyl and heroin epidemic then going to, uh, not just from white Americans, but now going to African Americans affecting them as well. Or you think it could be something else, but the data is not yet specific enough for that? It's also a little early to tell whether or not this is something that's going to keep climbing or whether this is something that's going to bubble back down again. Mm. But it is certainly something that should be on everybody's radar because it's a problem both in the white community and the black community. And in fact, what I would do is I would say, maybe we're just slicing this up the wrong way now. And instead of slicing it up first by race, what we should do is just let's slice it up by education. Mm. Given that the mortality rates for blacks and whites have converged for people with a high school degree or less, let's just look at class rather than looking by race. Right. You propose a theory in this paper behind uh, these trends, uh, which you didn't propose in the earlier paper. You call it cumulative disadvantage. And here's what you write. Quote, the story is rooted in the labor market, but involves many aspects of life, including health and childhood, marriage, child rearing, and religion. Unquote. Uh, Tell us about that. We think that the data are consistent with a model in which people leave high school or they may even get um, an associate's degree. They go out into the labor market and they find a very hostile environment. And that environment is becoming more and more hostile for each successive birth cohort. It's almost as if you leave high school and they hand you a weight and you have to carry that weight around with you. And the weight may be the extent to which jobs, good jobs have disappeared for people with your educational background. And the longer you have to carry that weight, the worse, the weaker you get. Because what happens is your girlfriend doesn't want to marry you. Maybe you move in with her. Maybe it doesn't work out. Maybe you've had a child. Maybe she repartners and it's really hard for you to even see your children. Maybe you've left the religion of your childhood. Legacy churches are giving way to these churches where there's more encouragement to seek on your own rather than be part of kind of a more... A rigid structure, the kinds of jobs that you are eligible for are jobs where there's no ladder up. So the idea that like if you worked at this company for five years or 10 years, you could 
pretty confidently expect that your wages would rise the longer you were there. So real returns to experience either with that employer or with your new set of skills move to another employer. So if between the birth cohorts, that kind of a lifestyle becomes less and less likely, then in your personal life, in your religious life, in your working life, you don't have the kind of structures that can help you to hold body and soul together. And so we think of that as the longer you have to bear that, the harder it is for you, which is why we think between the birth cohorts, if they're observed at any given age, people who are born in a later cohort are more likely to commit suicide or die of drug overdose or or take to drink. Yeah. One final uh, issue related to this paper that I want to bring up. There were more what I would call substance-less critiques about of this paper than I think of the prior one, which was interesting to me. But there was one kind of fascinating presentational issue that you discussed not long ago with Jeff Guo of the Washington Post. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk about that a little bit um, because I think this is both intriguing for what for what it says about the ways that social science gets communicated, uh, but it also just tells us something about like the culture now. You guys took a bit of flack for this chart that you showed in the paper showing rising mortality rates for white people with a high school education or less, and then compared it against the trends for all African Americans and all Hispanics. And the issue there was, why not compare like with like? Why compare uh, just this subset of white people for whom the mortality trends are going up with everyone from the other categories? So uh, it's true. We did take some flack for that. A couple of things. One is that the very first figure in the paper is the one that you're talking about. And we say, look, African-American mortality rate is higher than whites and historically has always been higher than whites, but it is falling quite dramatically, right? And we say, look, Hispanic mortality is lower than whites. It's always been lower than whites, and it is falling at the same rate as Europeans. And for white non-Hispanics, it's been rising, But within that subset, the people it's rising really dramatically for our people with a high school degree or less. That's figure one, right? So it's not as if we're not saying there's a real problem here for black mortality as well. Yes, it's falling rapidly, but it's still way too high. I mean, it's still higher than anyone should have to to face. Figure two in the paper compares like with like, right? That's the one we had been talking about earlier with the converging... So the question I think you're asking me in an indirect fashion is why would you put the whites with a high school degree or less on figure one? Right. And I think in part for political economy reasons, that if working class whites who started the the new century with a mortality rate that was 30% lower than African Americans and they're ending 2015 with a mortality rate that's 30% higher than African Americans, if the comparison that they're making in terms of how well they're doing is relative to African Americans as a whole, then for political economy reasons, it might be interesting to to, uh, show what those two look like head to head. It's also, of course, really important to look at what it had to head with African Americans with a high school degree or less. So we show both. 
But we think that if white working class men and women feel that they are at, you know, that they've taken a big step down their comparison ladder, we're just presenting those facts. Mm -hmm. We're not actually trying to say, to give it any, certainly no no normative um, interpretation, more possibly in terms of why do people vote the way they do? what's happening in the uh, the rest of the country it seemed like it might be useful a useful statistic to have yeah you also brought up in your interview with jeff uh something else that i think also explains why there's a sensitivity to these presentational issues right there was uh, a kind of search for like a quote unquote black culture pathology 20 or 30 years ago when the crack cocaine epidemic um, was hitting the African-American community. When something similar happens to white people, the explanation tends to center around the economy or labor market issues. And I think either you or Angus in this interview, it was a joint interview, so I don't remember who said it, but one of you said, but look, this shows that actually we should we should understand that this, because this also happens to white people, we should revisit our assumptions from earlier when everybody was looking for something wrong with like the culture. Actually, these are similar things that can happen to anybody. I, I absolutely. I think that if, if it helps to change the conversation and to look at how is it possible for people to keep body and soul together, to what extent does the economy have an effect on that? and all the knock-on effects we were just talking about in terms of cumulative disadvantage, it can explain a lot. Yeah. Now, uh, that doesn't go back and fix a lot of horrible things that were written, you know, 30 years ago. That I can't change, right? right? But hopefully we, it may help with the conversation. But we can now. hopefully be smarter about it this time. Because yeah. I guess that looking back on it now, it should have been obvious to all of us back then that this search to like this this search for a pathological problem that was inherent to black culture was a flawed assumption. Oh, we should absolutely. have been thinking we should have been thinking a lot deeper. I think a lot of and us hopefully we'll avoid that problem this time. Yes. Let's hope. I mean one one of the things though that I think maybe have a cultural difference in the US relative to Europe, right? Because when we look to our sister countries and see that they're not dying off one of the reasons we think that might be happening is because they do have a much more generous safety net. I'm not sure that America's ready for a generous safety net. I think that in in a large part of America, possibly the majority of, of Americans who have been raised with this idea that I, as an individual, will take care of me and my family, and you can take care of you and your family, and that's the way we like it. And I don't want a handout. I don't want a handout. I want a job. Right. Get me a job. I just don't want this. And it's possible if that actually is a deep-rooted difference between Europeans and Americans, it's going to make it a lot harder for us to deal with what's going on and what's coming down the pike. Yeah. Last question. Uh, What's next for you? Well, we we see this uh, research project as having a lot of legs. The model of cumulative disadvantage is really still quite tentative. And what we want to do is document more fully whether or not 
people are finding the return to experience in labor market really has fallen for people with less than a college degree to try to see whether or not that's happening in some occupations more than others. We want to pursue pain, which we know has skyrocketed. What fraction of that pain comes from the fact that you hurt yourself on the job? What fraction of pain is associated with the fact that your life is much more anxiety-producing and you're storing anxiety in your body in the form of pain, which we know also does happen? And... um, And what part of the opioid crisis comes from the fact that people were in pain and what part of pain comes from the fact that they had access to the opioids. So those are just a couple of the... Of the strands you can pursue. Yeah. And the children, those children we were talking about that you, you may lose contact with because your relationship broke up. What happens to them when they get to be of labor market age? So is this going to actually get worse before it gets better? Given that we have this baby boomer cohort that's moving into retirement now, and there had been a lot of worry in the early days, oh my gosh, we're going to have all of these people eligible for Medicare. And at first it was, oh, relax. They're a lot healthier. They're going to need less medical care. But now we think, like as the baby boomers birth cohorts and younger younger ages those people may be in much worse medical shape and might need a lot more medical care moving into retirement and so sort of a better understanding that as well is on the agenda and case what a treat this has been thanks so much for doing this thank you my pleasure And that is the end of my conversation with Anne Case. Again, within the next couple of weeks, we'll be releasing a bonus segment with the part of our conversation where we talk about Anne Case's background and her earlier work. But for now, you can contact us at alphachat at ft.com or give us a call at 917-551-5012. That is plus one country code because Amy and I are based in the U.S. for our overseas listeners. Rate the show and leave us a review on iTunes. It does help people find out about us, and we genuinely do appreciate it when people leave a review there, whether it's good or bad. Show notes to this and all prior episodes can be found at ft.com forward slash alpha chat. Many thanks, as always, to our great producer and editor, Amy Keene, and thanks. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Our listeners, we'll see you here again next week for another episode of Alpha Chat.